Let me ask you to open up with us this morning to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John in chapter 13. As we prepare for the joyful privilege of taking the Lord's Supper, I want us to come in John 13 back into the upper room. Over the next hours, Jesus will experience deep agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. He will be betrayed by Judas, deserted by his disciples, denied three times by Peter. In the next hours, Jesus will be falsely accused and slandered in unjust courts. He will be beaten, mocked, spat upon, He will be crucified between two criminals and he will experience the wrath of God poured out upon him for the sins of his bride. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. For her life he died. And so here we are on the eve of all of this. By this time tomorrow it will all be over and Jesus will be dead. But right now he is with his disciples and he has just done the unthinkable. The Lord of glory has just unrobed himself of his outer garments, tied a towel around his waist, and washed the dusty, dirty feet of these common men. And they are stunned by what Jesus has done. It was the act of a menial servant. It was an undignified act. And now we pick up the account in verse 12. So let's pick up the account in verse 12. When he had washed their feet... And put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We'll stop there. Let's begin by dealing with a common question that arises from this passage of Scripture. And the question is this. I wonder if you've considered it before. Is foot washing an ordinance of the Christian church? Should foot washing be practiced regularly in local churches alongside baptism 
and alongside the Lord's Supper. There are some who believe that we should view foot washing as an ordinance of God. The Mennonites, who find their origins in the Anabaptist of the 1500s, are perhaps the most well-known example of a group of Christians who believe this, and they make their argument from this passage that we have just read. Does not Jesus clearly say here, you also ought to wash one another's feet? Does he not say, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you? And so the Mennonites argue that we have an express and clear word from Christ and that we are in error if we do not regularly practice the washing of one another's feet as an ordinance of the church. So why have others, including us, not followed the Mennonite practice? In fact, throughout Christian history, why have so few groups practiced foot washing? Certainly we read nothing of it in the creeds. There's no mention of it in our confessions. We just read our church covenant together. There's no mention of foot washing there. Why? Well, perhaps the most obvious argument against foot washing as an ordinance is this. It does not appear to have been received as an ordinance by the apostles themselves. Remember, these men who are in the upper room in John 13 are getting ready to experience the very first Lord's Supper. And Jesus is going to lead them in breaking the bread, just as his body is about to be broken. And he is going to lead them in pouring the wine, just as his blood in the next few hours is going to be poured out. And they will eat the bread. And these men are going to drink the wine. And then Jesus will tell them to do it as often as they do it in remembrance of him. And when we go to the book of Acts, what do we find? We find the early churches, under the leadership of the apostles, practicing the Lord's Supper. And when we look to the epistles, when we look to the letters of the New Testament, what do we find? We find Paul writing to the Corinthians about how that church is to observe the Lord's Supper rightly. It is clear to these apostles That just as God commanded Old Testament Israel to remember their salvation out of Egypt through the yearly observance of the Passover feast, so Jesus is now commanding his church to remember his crucifixion and to remember his sacrifice through the regular observance of the Lord's Supper. These same disciples, minus Judas, of course, will be commanded by the risen Lord Jesus to go out into the world and to make disciples. And they will be told explicitly to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And when we go to the book of Acts, what do we find happening? We find the apostles baptizing people. We find people believing on Christ and being baptized into the membership of local churches. And when we look at the New Testament letters, at the epistles, 
We look at Romans or 1 Corinthians or Galatians or 1 Peter. We find teaching there about baptism. Clearly Jesus intended for baptism to be an ordinance that was carried out as a way for God's people to profess their faith in Christ. But let me ask you this question. How often in the book of Acts do you see the church meeting together to wash one another's feet? Over and over again in Acts, we see people being baptized, we see Christians observing the Lord's Supper. But where is foot washing? And the answer is, it isn't there. And when we go to the New Testament letters, we see the apostles writing to the churches and they give instruction on the Lord's Supper to the Corinthians and they give lots of instruction about baptism. But what do the the apostles have to teach to the churches about foot washing? Do you remember what Paul or Peter or James or John said about this practice? The answer, of course, is they said nothing about this practice. Though they taught the churches about baptism and they taught the churches about the Lord's Supper, they did not apparently see a need to teach churches about foot washing. And that indicates to us that foot washing was not viewed as an ordinance in the churches of Christ. In fact, the only reference that comes close to what we're talking about would be 1 Timothy 5 verse 10 where we learn that if a widow was going to be included among those that were financially cared for by the church she needed to be a woman of Christian character and when Paul describes this woman of Christian character here's how he describes her 1 Timothy 5 beginning in verse 9 let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, and has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. And there it is obviously apparent that foot washing was viewed as a practice of hospitality. In fact, Paul mentions it right alongside hospitality. And that's really a second point that I would give to you about this practice. It was a gracious act of hospitality performed in the homes of Christians. In other words, it was an act of service performed when you welcomed people into your home. It was not a holy ritual to be carried out by the gathered church. It was not a symbolic ordinance of Christ the way baptism and the Lord's Supper are to be done in perpetuity for remembering the sacrifice of Christ. No. Paul may be speaking figuratively in 1 Timothy 5, using the same illustration as Jesus in John 13, but if he's not, if he's speaking literally, then foot washing was clearly practiced by the early Christians in their homes as a way of showing hospitality to others and not as an ordinance of the church. Incidentally, I read a testimony recently of a man who grew up in a foot-washing church. And he said that on foot-washing Sunday, his father would always be careful to make sure that his feet were thoroughly cleaned at home before he went to church. Because he didn't want whoever was going to be washing his feet at church to have to be washing dirty feet. And so he said there was never a day in their home when their feet were cleaner than on the day of foot-washing Sunday. That same writer pointed out that we have the Lord's Supper 
as a reminder of the death of Christ. And we have baptism as a reminder of the burial and the resurrection of Christ. Those two ordinances preach the gospel. And so there is no need for a third ordinance. And so in very short order, uh, that's a brief explanation of why we're not washing feet today. But why we do celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, let me draw your attention to five important truths from this passage we just read. Five important truths from this text. Number one, Jesus is teacher and Lord. Jesus is teacher and Lord. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. And so let me ask you, do you view Christ as your teacher? Do you view Jesus as your heavenly instructor? Mount Hermon, we have many teachers. Everything around you every day is constantly trying to instruct you. The television you watch, the radio you listen to, the podcasts, these are influencing your thinking. These are affecting your worldview. The people you hang around, the books that you read, the role models you admire, these are all teachers in your life. But Jesus is called here the teacher. Jesus is God, the one with infinite knowledge and infinite wisdom. Jesus alone has the words of life, the words that can make you holy and bring you safely to heaven. Jesus is the teacher who can help you decide which teachers in this world are worth listening to and which ones are not. You see, Jesus' teaching is the standard by which all other teaching is to be tested. I ask you again, When you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you think of him as your teacher? Are you a true disciple who comes to the Bible as one who comes to sit at the feet of Christ and to learn from him? The Bible is the word of Christ. How you relate to the Bible will tell you how you are relating to Jesus If you are seldom opening up your Bible, if you seldom find yourself in Bible study, if you seldom come to hear the preaching of God's Word, in a sense it's like you're skipping class. You are neglecting the teacher. If you are reading your Bible, if you are going to Bible study and attending preaching, but you're not doing so eagerly and you're not doing so willingly, then you're like the student who's in the classroom with the teacher, but you're like the student who keeps falling asleep in class and isn't paying attention. Or if you come to the Bible as a cynic and a critic, as one who constantly wants to find discrepancies and to prove the Bible wrong, then you're like the one who keeps interrupting in class and arguing with the teacher. But dear friends, if you come to your personal reading, your times of small group Bible study, the preaching of God's word, if you come to these hungry, with a humble heart, eager to learn from the teacher, from the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are in a position to be greatly blessed by him. 
there has never been a teacher like the Lord Jesus Christ. We are foolish if we do not humble ourselves and go to his word again and again to feast upon it. His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. But let me also ask you this. Do you view Christ as your Lord? Jesus said, you call me teacher and you call me Lord and you are right for so I am. Well, is that how you look at the Lord Jesus? Do you view him as Lord? As the one who reigns over all things. As the one who sits at the right hand of God with all authority and power. As the one who is Lord over all, including those who don't believe in Him, including those who don't like Him, He still is their Lord, and they will stand before Him one day. He is King and Judge over all. We've said many times from this pulpit that the main question is not, do you need to make Jesus Lord of your life? No, He is Lord. The question is, how are you relating to Him? Are you submitting to Him as Lord? Or are you rebelling against Him as Lord? Those who humble themselves to bow before this Lord and to trust Him and to love Him and to obey Him will find that He is such a good King He is the best of kings, the greatest, the wisest, the most pure, the most perfect of kings. But those who refuse to submit to the lordship of Christ will find that his justice is swift and that he is mighty and that he will destroy all who seek to undermine his rule. And so I ask you, are you a happy submitter to Jesus as Lord over all, or are you a rebel? The answer is in your heart. Do you have a heart that seeks to obey Christ, or do you have a heart that seeks to do your will instead? When your desire clashes with Christ's will for you, whose will wins? Whose desires do you ultimately follow and submit to? Whether or not you have come to trust and love the Lord Jesus and to submit your will to His determines whether your citizenship is in heaven or your citizenship is here on earth among those who will be cast into hell. Jesus is teacher and Lord Second truth to note in our passage is that Jesus is a master and a sender. A master and a sender. And this is verse 16. So look down at verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And so Jesus is speaking to his disciples And he is reminding them that he is their master. He is the one who sends them out. The disciples are the servants and the sent out. And they have been sent or will be sent to carry Jesus' message, to carry his teaching to the world. Peter and James and John and Matthew and the other disciples, they did not go out into all the world preaching their own ideas. 
They did not go out into all the world preaching their own message. They were apostles, sent out ones. They were to take everything that Jesus had taught them and everything that Jesus would teach them by his spirit and they were to share that message with others. They were to preach Jesus' message to all people everywhere. And our church exists today. And other churches exist today. Because these men did just that. And today, it is Christ's church that is to carry on this work. We are the servants of our master. Jesus is the head of the church. And we are the ones who have been sent out by Christ to live as his ambassadors in this world. And so now I want to ask you, to look at yourself. Do you see yourself this way? Do you see yourself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? The apostles called themselves many different things, but what title did they use more than any other title in their letters? At the beginning of almost every letter that Paul wrote, and Peter does it, and James does it, and John does it, they say, Paul, a doulos, of Jesus Christ, a servant, a slave. There were times when Paul had to exert his apostleship. There were times when Paul had to remind other churches, I have God-given authority, I am an apostle. But that was not the title that Paul gloried in. The one thing that Paul loved to say about himself and that you and I ought to love to say about ourselves is this. We are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think of yourself as an ambassador in this world? That in every calling God has given to you, you are fulfilling that calling as one who represents Christ. I hope that you do. Our third truth is this. Here's our third truth from the passage. Here it is. Our teacher, Lord, master, sender has stooped to serve us. Jesus stooped to serve us. He is our teacher. He is our Lord. He is our master. He is our sender. He is above us, but he has stooped to serve us. Jesus stooped to serve his disciples in the upper room. He knelt down. He took their feet in his hands and he washed them. And as we've seen in our past Lord's Supper messages on this passage, this was intended to be an illustration for them. In the upper room, he stooped three feet to wash their feet. But this was a picture of a much deeper stooping. That Jesus stooped from heaven to earth to save his people. That Jesus stooped from a life of glory to a life of suffering and rejection. That on the cross, in a very real sense, Christ stooped into the experience of hell as the wrath of God was unleashed upon him. Everything that Jesus did was so that through his death, we could be washed and we could be made clean. He stooped to wash us inside and out. There is a fountain filled with blood 
drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. We are washed in the blood of Christ. This teacher gave his life for his students. This Lord took the punishment that the citizens of his kingdom deserved. This master suffered in the place of his servants. This sender went to the cross for the very ones that he would send. And now notice our fourth point, and it is the main point of the passage. As Jesus has done for us, so we ought to do for others. The main point of this paragraph is that as Jesus has done for us, we ought to do for others. Listen to Jesus, make it very clear. Verses 14 and 15. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If Jesus is greater than us, both in authority and in purity, and he stooped himself to serve others, then certainly we also ought to stoop ourselves to serve other people. And I know we live in a day when people don't like that word, ought. Nobody today likes being told that we ought to do something. It's a word of moral obligation. So many times we would hear this passage preached as, Jesus is inviting you to come alongside Him and serving other people. Friends, Jesus is doing more than inviting you. He is commanding you. He is saying you have a moral ought. It is sin to see that person in the street and to walk by on the other side. We are in disobedience and we are in sin if we are not imitating our Savior in stooping and sacrificing of ourselves to serve one another. Jesus' example reveals the moral rightness of service. Ayn Rand very popular in conservative circles these days, wrote The Fountainhead, wrote Atlas Shrugged. There's even movies coming out now. Ayn Rand taught that serving others is immorality. Ayn Rand taught that for one person to sacrifice of themselves to serve another person was to do evil. Jesus' example shows us that she is wrong. On that, she is wrong. It is right and it is good and we ought to sacrifice of ourselves for the welfare of other people. Jesus is God and he lived on this earth in moral purity and is our example. He showed us what it means to live a godly life And what did a godly life look like? Jesus' godly life, setting the example for us, was a life of service. The Son of Man came not to 
be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28, Mark 10, 45. Here is the banner that could be raised over the entire life of Jesus Christ. It was a life of servanthood. The Son of Man came to serve. God came to earth to show us what a holy life looks like. And what did a holy life look like? Servanthood. God came to earth to show us what a life of love looks like. And what did that life of love look like? It looked like servanthood. Jesus came to show us what loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength looks like. And do you know what loving God looks like? It looks like stooping to wash your brother's feet. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Teaching truth to people who didn't know it. Caring for the sick and the hurting. Showing compassion on penitent sinners, standing up against arrogant Pharisees, which was an act of love and an act of service to those Pharisees. All of this was done by Jesus out of love for his Father and for people and to serve them. And then his life was capped off by the ultimate example of service as he laid his life down for sinners. What must we learn here? We must learn that there is no such thing as holiness without service. Do not pursue any idea of personal holiness that is completely focused on self and doesn't include laying yourself down for other people. Personal holiness means service. Do not say you're growing in love. If you're not growing in sacrificial service. We cannot say we love God if we do not love our neighbors. They will know that we are Christians by our love. Our acts of love. We ought to serve. And we must serve. 1 Peter 4.10 As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 13 You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. It is morally right to serve, and we ought to serve. And by the way, Jesus' example of service also makes service a privilege. Yes, service is a moral duty, but service is also a privilege. When we serve others and it costs us, we are imitating our Savior. We get the privilege of being like Him. When we serve at a cost, we are truly following Jesus. And it is a privilege to follow in his footsteps. It ought to be a joy to us to serve others from the heart. Jesus is the standard of greatness. 
And he taught us with his words and with his life that true greatness is found in a humbling oneself to serve others. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Dear Christians, shouldn't we be motivated by the kindness that Christ has shown to us? Freely you have received. Now freely give. Freely Christ is serving you in countless unimaginable ways. Now as a recipient of the love and the grace of Christ overflow in service on others. And this is for everybody. Whether you're a humble farmer or the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, every Christian is called to be a servant of his brothers and sisters. Children, learning to throw a ball well does not make you a great person. Even excelling in mathematics or becoming a memory master or becoming... I don't know, valedictorian of your high school. Those alone do not make you a great person. Playing Xbox well or PlayStation 4 well, that is not the definition of greatness. Jesus said this is what it means to be great. Love others by sacrificing of yourself to serve them because of what I've done for you. Teenagers, Same thing. This is what it means to be great. Look to the needs of others around you. Are you a servant? To all of us in this room, do we not often get so busy with our own needs and our own wants that we fail to even notice the needs of the people around us? Should we not work on this by grace through much prayer? God, give me an alarm that goes off when I'm around somebody that has a need. Father, give me a special sensitivity to the needs of others around me and give me a tender heart that is quick and willing to put aside whatever else is going on in my life to care for these people. So many of you already help at the church. Cleaning rotation, serving in the nursery. So many of you already are serving one another in so many unofficial ways all the time. I'm hearing conversations going on between church members of things that you're doing for one another. I overhear the encouragement that you show towards one another. I'm just praying that God would cause us to overflow in this. This is not a reproof sermon. Mount Hermon, you're not doing well at this, do better. That's, that's not that kind of this sermon. This sermon is, I do see God's grace in this in our church. I do see much evidence of this in our church. Let's do more. Let's all of us overflow here. Let's see if we can be more like our Savior, a, a brighter light shining in this community for Christ as they see the love that we have for one another as we sacrifice to serve. And dear friends, there are so many needs outside of our church. There are so many needs in our community. Not long ago, my family got to help out with a book party uh, in downtown Rocky Mount. We got to hang out with a bunch of kids and care for them and give them some free books. 
I know that some of you minister in prisons. I know that some of you are ministering to students. Look for ways that even beyond this church, you can be an example of Christ to the lost by serving them. Senior adults in this room, we don't ever retire from service. We may change in what we're able to do, but don't ever retire from service. Prayer is service. And boy, there's a lot of service that comes when somebody receives an encouraging letter in the mail. Because people don't receive letters in the mail anymore. Right? You've seen the cartoon where it used to be 20 years ago. You know, we have all this mail in our mailbox. Ding! I got mail! I got email! And we'd run to our email. We were excited. We got email. Now we have a thousand things in email. And we get so excited because we got a letter in the mail. Right? We've completely changed. A lot of good can be done by an encouraging letter in the mail. Guys, wherever we are, whatever season of life, young, old, wherever you are, look for ways to sacrifice in the service of others because of what Christ has done for us. I'm going to close by reading this passage and then we'll remember what Christ has done for us in the Lord's Supper. Have this mind among yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to. But he made himself a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross that passage began have this mind Mount Hermon let's have this mind among ourselves to be like Jesus oh and I can't fail to notice the last point in our passage it's verse 17 did you see it those who humble themselves to serve others will be blessed Jesus looks to his disciples and he says you ought to do this and if you know it know what there means put it into practice you will be blessed do you want God's favor on your family be a family of service do we want God's favor on this church let's be a church of service and if we want God's favor on our lives let us lay our lives down in service to one another amen amen